I'm going to start today with a, uh, a secular poem. Secular. Every, I'm sure most of you, I'd say a lot of you at least, have read or heard the poem, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. It's a dandy. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Isn't that lovely? Beautiful. I'm going to post something, and I might bring it up today, I might not. I'm going to post something on the church Facebook page that you've been reading that wrong your whole life. We're not going to talk about that this morning. I'm just going to leave that there. Just to make you a what? I'm going to post something. It's interesting what this poem means. They read it a lot at like graduations and stuff, and I took the road less traveled, so, and that's not what it means. Anyway, I'll just leave that there. No, no, nope, nope, I will not post it now. <laughs> post it in about an hour or so. <laughs> but what the main thing that I want us to see from that poem is that when we are confronted with a choice between two roads, we have to take one. We cannot take both roads. Now, maybe later we can come and take the other road. He talked about that. But we, being finite, we being people of place and time, can only take one road at a time. We can't take both. Frost bemoaned this in his poem, and today we see that we have a choice as people, as those who see and know the ways of God, we have the choice of two paths in front of us. And what we're going to see today is the possibility of rewards or or consequences, the possibility of those are dire. It's very important that we understand what that means. So we're going to look today at Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 and 32. Uh, 22 through 32. If you would stand, we'll read that passage and then we'll dive into it. The very words of God. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Let's pray. Father, we know that You are willing. We know that You are able to help us understand these words spoken by our Lord. And we know that You do that by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Father, please, by that, by that very same Spirit, teach and instruct us today. Convict us, draw us, do what needs to be done in Your power. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Mm. You ever come up to a door that you don't necessarily want to open? Yeah, me too. It's really, this has been a surprising week for me in studying this passage. We'll start with verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man was, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So, here's this timestamp thing at the beginning of a passage. We don't know for sure when the then is here. We don't have a specific timestamp, but we know that it's in this progression that we've been seeing through chapters 11 and 12 of building doubt and opposition to Jesus in His ministry. He had enjoyed that period where everybody was just, hey, this is awesome, look what's going on, people are getting healed. That that changed dramatically once the disciples came back from their uh, being sent out and coming back. And opposition, doubt have been increasing since chapter 11. Um, Chapter 11 at the beginning, even John the Baptist, right, was wondering, is Jesus really the Messiah or not? The crowds have still followed Jesus, but the religious leaders led by the scribes and the Pharisees are increasingly offended by Jesus. And Jesus' claims to be the Son of Man and saying things like, The Father has handed all things over to me. He's breaking the Sabbath, Him and His disciples, by plucking grain. He's healing people on the Sabbath. I mean, how brazenly irreverent can you be, they think. Jesus even called Himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And again, how aggressive can you be? How in your face can you be? That was the your mama thing we talked about, right? And last week we saw that Matthew turned to the prophet Isaiah to verify Jesus' activity as the kinds of things that the Messiah would do to verify that Jesus was the type of person that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be. Meek, lowly, gentle, bringing hope and justice even to the Gentiles. But the Pharisees, they're capped out. They've had all they can take and they've made up their mind that Jesus has to be killed. And that was their only hope of silencing this madman, which is what they consider him, this madman who had made himself equal with God on multiple occasions. And so this is the then that we find ourselves in today. And what's going on in this instance? Well, somebody, we don't know who, brings a man who is described as a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. Now, don't blow by that too quickly. Think about that. This man was oppressed by a demon. That's terrible. This man was blind. That makes him an outcast in society. It makes him probably a beggar. 
Well, if you're oppressed by a demon and you're a beggar, are people going to come around you? I doubt it. Oh, that's that demon oppressed guy. Stay away from him. Who knows what he'll do? We don't know how old he is, how long he's been blind, mute, demon oppressed. We don't know. He can't talk. He can't tell people what he needs. So imagine this demon oppressed, blind, mute man sitting on the side of the road. Nobody approaching him. No hope. And somebody brings him to Jesus. I know somebody that can help you. He can't tell him yes or no. He just goes. This man was helpless and hopeless. And if you've been following the narrative at all, this is just the type of person that was a perfect candidate to be helped and given hope by Jesus. That's exactly what happens. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Demon's gone. He can see. He can talk. And I don't think that he had to learn the vocabulary. Well, if he just started talking, what in the world just happened? I can see you. I don't hear those voices anymore. Jesus healed him. And I think we have a tendency to read something like that and say, oh, that's cool. No. <laughs> it's amazing. Life transformation in a moment. That's what God does. Imagine seeing a man who had at one particular moment been delivered from a demon and instantly he had the ability to speak and see when he hadn't been able to do those things before. Was the demon to blame for the blindness and muteness? Maybe. But either way, a shockingly amazing miracle had just taken place as the power of the Messiah was displayed By this man, Jesus. How did people respond? And all the people were amazed. I'd say they were. And said, can this be the son of David? So all the people who saw this power displayed by Jesus were amazed. All. And this word for amazed means to be beside oneself. To make astonished. To throw into wonderment. To be astounded. All the people who saw this miracle, kind of a three-in-one miracle. We've seen Jesus heal blind people. We've seen Him cast out demons. We had not seen Him about a mute person. But here we see three things instantly delivered. And everybody that saw it, they were just beside themselves in wonder for what had happened. And we should be too, by the way. And what did their astonishment lead them to think? What did it lead them to feel? What did it lead them to say? They say, can this be the son of David? Now, this is interesting. What have we said from the beginning of this study of the book of Matthew? Matthew is working to establish Jesus as the Messiah, the long-promised, soon-coming King of Israel. And whose throne was this Messiah supposed to sit on? David's. God had made a covenant with David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of God's people for all eternity. And the people of Israel looked forward to this forever king with great anticipation. This, quote, son of David would bring about the eternal kingdom of God. And now what's the question of the people who see this amazing miracle? Can this be the son of David? Now there's a lot of doubt pent up in that question, but there's a little glimmer of hope. They're kind of going, uh, uh, 
what's that lady that does, you know, the, the, you know, anybody know what I'm talking about, the meme, where the lady's going, mm, and then she goes, oh, right. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here. They're like, mm, uh, maybe, maybe. Somebody needs to make that today, by the way. Could this be the son of David? Mm, oh. There's a, little bit, there's a little bit of hope, a lot of doubt. It's like they're saying we don't really think it's true, but we feel like it is possible. We, what we're seeing makes us think this is possible, but ooh, I don't know. That's quite a step for all the people that saw this happen. They were looking for a mighty, liberating, kingly Messiah to come, a general. And Jesus doesn't fit that mold. But man, he sure does keep on doing things that show that he has power that is not from this world. Only supernatural power can explain what they just saw, what we just read. Normal, everyday people just don't do things like this. We haven't seen anything like this before, they're thinking. Now, it may not fit our expectations of the one that God is sending, but this guy, this guy is way more than we can process. Can this be the son of David? Maybe, possibly? Is there a little glimmer of hope? Seems like there's that glimmer of hope and people are going, oh, well, not the Pharisees. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. The contrastive conjunction. But all the people were amazed. A little glimmer of hope. Can this be the son of David? But sets us up for some opposition, doesn't it? And who are our classic opposers, antagonists in this gospel so far? Pharisees. But when the Pharisees heard it, this makes it seem that the Pharisees weren't there to see it happen. But people were letting them know, hey, hey, that Jesus guy just healed a man that was demon-oppressed and blind and mute. Dude just started talking, said he could see everything, didn't hear the voices anymore. It was amazing. And can't you just see the Pharisaic heads pull back? Brows furrow, frowns pop up. Ah, Jesus. They weren't amazed. They were disgusted. This Jesus fellow surely couldn't do anything good, could he? Of course not, no. But check out their response, their explanation for what's going on here. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is, the first, this is not the first time we've seen this, right? One thing to note here is that they do not doubt for a second that something supernatural happened. There's no doubt in their minds about that. Okay, that happened, but they don't try to refute the supernaturality of it, but they suggest instead that the supernatural power came not from God, but from an evil source. Obviously, to the Pharisees at least, God couldn't be behind all of this. That's crazy talk in their minds. So if something supernatural happened and God didn't do it, who had to do it? The Pharisees knew there were two options. Either God did this or the devil did this. It had to be Beelzebul, translated as Lord of the Flies, sometimes Lord of the Dung Heap, which was a depiction of Satan, 
to the Jews. It was kind of like their derision towards Satan. He's the Lord of the flies. He's the Lord of the dung heap. It was a derogatory term for the devil. So the Pharisees are saying that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of, under the influence of, under the leadership of, the devil. This man casts out demons by the devil's power. It's supernatural. It can't be God, so it has to be the devil. Now our enlightened minds would find some psychological reason why this happened. We'd give it a natural explanation which is stupid. Pharisees aren't stupid, but they are blind. They know it's supernatural, and they know it's not from God. So it must be from the devil. This man, this person, this Sabbath breaker who makes himself equal with God, this blasphemer, we'll talk about that in a minute, has to be from the devil. They see the work of the Son of God, God in the flesh, and they say, Devil. Wow. That's quite a conclusion, isn't it? Seems outlandish, but follow the logic. Jesus is going to follow the logic. Look at His reply to them. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus doesn't hear them say this stuff. It says, knowing their thoughts. So it's like there's later, it's like he's coming together and they're thinking, there's that devil who casts out devils by the work of the devil. What's going on in their heads? Jesus knows it though. Jesus knowing their thoughts. That's pretty supernatural too, by the way. I do not want that gift of knowing people's thoughts. No thank you. Jesus could read their minds, literally. He read their mail before they got it. He knew what they thought. He knew their evaluation of them and His healing and His deliverance ministry. And knowing that they were thinking He was operating in the power of the devil, He addresses them. Now imagine this confrontation. He walks up to them and they're thinking, devil, devil. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Now we need to pay attention here. Jesus is drawing a sharp dividing line, much like the Pharisees did. Okay, But He, of course, will come to a different conclusion. So they've accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus, to elaborate on why that's not true, doesn't just say, you guys are crazy. No, he logically tears them to shreds. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If a kingdom gets divided, it will get laid waste. Wake up, America. Sidebar. If a city or house is divided against itself, it can't stand. Makes sense, right? In a fight, in a war, unity is the only way to success. If one party is divided against itself, the other party has the upper hand just naturally, right? Try to march out of cadence in the army. It's not going to work. There has to be unity. And that's what Jesus is saying. If, if, if an army, if a town, if, if a group of people are not united, they can't stand. Now follow his thinking next verse. If it will pop up. If it won't, I'll read it anyway. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. 
how then will His kingdom stand? So, Jesus says, you say that I'm casting out demons by the prince of demons. Well, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. So how will His kingdom stand? If Satan is fighting Satan's plans and Satan's emissaries, how can His kingdom stand? He'd be tearing his own kingdom apart, right? I mean, this is just logic. This is 1 plus 1 equals 2. Jesus is saying that they just don't make any sense. And then he turns it on to them, verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. This is pretty interesting. Jesus says, if what I'm doing has its power source in Satan, if me casting out demons is powered by the devil, then how do your sons, meaning their disciples, how do they cast out demons? So it's clear from Jesus' statement that the disciples or the followers of the Pharisees had some sort of ministry involving casting out demons. I mean, who'd have thunk it, right? Turns out there was a lot of this going on in first century Palestine. Commentator Robert Muntz says this, Jewish exorcists were widely known in the first century. Anybody ever heard of the seven sons of Sceva? Acts 19. There uh, we see a story related of the seven sons of the Jewish high priest Sceva who attempting to cast out demons in the name of Jesus were attacked by the man with the evil spirit. End of quote from Muntz. Josephus supplies information about how the Jewish exorcists went about their trade. There are in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Psalms of Deliverance, songs that were used in the Jewish rites of casting out demons. And they had it down to a method. They said that those demons would either come out through your fingernails or your toenails. So they were looking for the hole that they came out of. And this is what they did. And Jesus is saying, if I do it by the power of demons, how do your sons do it? Kind of interesting that Jesus didn't have a ritual. He just said, go. Get. Gone. Can I go into the pigs? Sure. Go into the pigs. No songs, no rituals, just an authoritative word. So this concept of casting out demons was not a foreign one to the Jewish mind. And Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees and their disciples would have dabbled in this themselves, turns their argument back on them. If my casting out demons is done by the power of the devil, which is a ludicrous thought, Jesus says, then how do your people cast out demons? By whom do they cast them out? Ask them. See what they say. And therefore, Jesus says, they will be your judges. So, uh, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Pharisee disciple, um, how do you cast out demons? Well, it's by the power of God. Hmm. I was really hoping you'd say it was by Satan, because that would work better in my argument right now. No, this is going to be I'm certain that if any Pharisee asked their disciple where the power came from for them to cast out demons, their answer would have been that by the God Almighty, by God Most High, by Yahweh, He gives me my power. That's what they would have said. They would not say that the devil was their power source. So Jesus says, their answer condemns you for your crazy train of thought. And in this in verse 28, uh uh-oh. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, an awful lot like the your mama moment from a couple weeks ago. This is as in your face as Jesus could possibly be. 
Again, follow his line of thinking. You say I operate in the devil's power to cast out demons who are doing the devil's work. But the devil wouldn't empower someone to tear his kingdom apart to fight himself. And your disciples wouldn't say that they operate in the devil's power to cast out demons. They would say that God helps them. And if they and I are doing the same thing, which were they? We don't know. Our power comes from the same place or person in this case. So that means that you, being as wrong as you could possibly be, are missing what's actually going on here. Your prejudice, your hatred have blinded you to the most important fact in all of this. Again, in a contrastive statement, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if it's not the devil's power that I'm working in, that means that I'm working in God's power. I'm working by the power of God's Spirit. And if what I'm doing is from God, and you're saying it's from the devil, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's one or the other. And you, Pharisees, stand there rolling the eyes of your hearts at what I'm doing and you're missing the activity of God which has come upon you. You're missing the very plan of God that you say that you're looking for. As you fast and pray and give and perform your religious acts, saying that you're seeking and serving God, His kingdom has come upon you and you don't even know it. In Jesus' deliberate and irrevocable logic, He has painted them into a corner and nailed them to the wall with the conclusion that they have no idea what God is doing, how He is operating, what His kingdom looks like, and thusly, who God even is in the first place. Their religion is a scam. It's a sham. They are hypocritical play actors who are doing what they are doing for themselves and their kingdoms, not God and His kingdom. It would be appropriate to take this statement of Jesus and phrase it like this, Since it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you and you don't see it. You can't see it. You're missing and you will miss it. The kingdom of God has come upon you and you're missing it. I'm here in the name and the power of God according to the plan of God. I'm God in the flesh and you're calling me a devil. And you're missing it. The kingdom has come upon you and you are clueless. Ouch. But he's not done yet. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now that seems like a weird shift, doesn't it? Jesus turns the corner here and starts elaborating on what he actually is doing. In casting out demons, Jesus is storming the enemy front. He's invading the devil's kingdom and he's doing it strategically and purposefully. And and now get a hold of Jesus here. Uh, you're going to describe the kingdom of God. You're going to describe defeating the devil. What imagery would you say you want to use, Jesus? Well, let's use a burglar. Okay. See, what I'm doing is there's stuff in this house where this strong man lives. And technically, it's not my stuff. It's the strong man's stuff. And if I want his stuff, I've got to break into his house. I've got to tie him up. And then I've got to steal his stuff right in front of him. But I can't do all that until I tie the strong man up. So I'm kind of like a burglar 
who breaks into a house, Jesus says, and I tie this guy up and he's in a chair and he's big and strong, but I've got him tied up so I can take anything I want and I can do it right in front of his face. That's the picture that Jesus uses. <laughs> Jesus is comparing what he's doing to, with being a burglar and taking stuff right in front of the guy that you tied up after you broke into his house. Jesus is saying that he has entered the strong man, here referring to Satan's house, and he's plundering his goods. As Jesus casts out demons, it's like the devil is sitting there tied up watching Jesus take the souls of men as he frees them from demonic demonic oppression. It's quite a picture, isn't it? (laughs) I'm taking him with me. He don't live here anymore. And I'm not going to untie you when I leave here, by the way. Jesus is making it clear that he is not in league with Satan, but is literally taking Satan's stuff from him like a burglar stealing a strong man's stuff from him after tying him up. That strong man would not be happy with the burglar now, would he? Of course he wouldn't be. So, no, Jesus is not in league with Satan, but is his blatant enemy making sport of him as he operates in the power of God's very spirit, ushering in God's very kingdom. He's doing God's work. And they need to know this because, no, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus has made it clear that He is operating in the power of God's Spirit. He has made it clear that He's opposed to the devil. And now here, He draws a sharp dividing line, which He said He would do, right? I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. He draws a sharp dividing line between those who are with Him and those who aren't. And those who aren't with Him, Jesus says, without any other qualification, are against Him. Two options. You're either for Jesus, with Jesus, or you're against Jesus. Now frame that up in the context of the flow of thought here. Whose side is Jesus on? Whose power is He operating in? God's. And if you're not with Him... You're against Him. And therefore, if you're not with Him, you're not with God. You're actually against God. Now remember, He's talking to the Pharisees. And they've made it pretty clear that they're the high and holy ones and that they are indeed against Him. So Jesus says plainly, the Pharisees are against God. The Pharisees are against God's plan. The Pharisees are against God's man. He says it again in just a little bit different way when He says, and whoever does not gather with Me scatters. Same type of thought. Either you're bringing people in or you're scattering them away, away from God. Either you're drawing people in, gathering like a good shepherd, the good shepherd, or you're causing them to be scattered. Which is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are really running people away from God and what they're doing. Jesus is saying there are only two options, two camps, two armies, two kingdoms, no more, no less, exactly two. There's his side, which is God's side, or there's the Pharisee's side, which is not God's side, which makes it the devil's side. There's God's kingdom, and there's man's kingdom, which is in the devil's kingdom, which is really being ruled by the strong man, the enemy of God. So Jesus clearly puts the Pharisees in the devil's camp, calls them the devil's people doing the devil's work. 
The Pharisees are against God and are scattering those who would come to God otherwise. Jesus looks at them and turns the tables on them 180 degrees. They had accused Him of working with and for the devil and He reflects that directly back onto them. And here's the rub. He's God in the flesh. He is the truth. So His word is authoritative and theirs is not. So their opinion does not count. Only His truth does. And His truth is that they are on the wrong side of the dichotomy. They've chosen the wrong road. And they're bringing people with them, shoving people up the road in front of them. They're in the wrong camp. They're against God. Dang. That's a bad day. But He ain't done. Then there's this. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Mm. All right then. That escalated quickly, didn't it? Now keep in mind, all that we've talked about to this point, context is key. Always. Notice the first word of the verse. Therefore, in light of Jesus being accused of casting out demons by the power of the devil and Jesus making it clear that that's preposterous because divided kingdoms can't stand and then making it clear that He's working in the power of God and the Pharisees are in the only other camp that there is, therefore, Jesus says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. That'll send a shiver up your spine, won't it? That'll make you squirm in your chair a little bit, won't it? And what's our fear here as we read that? Have I committed that sin? Will I commit that sin? Have I done something that can't be forgiven? And not even known it? Anybody ever worried about that? Yeah. If there's a sin that can't be forgiven, I want to know if I've committed it or not. And you know what? It's kind of a shame because then we thrust ourselves into this narrative. And we're missing the point. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, I would want to know if I've committed this sin. You should want to know if you've committed this sin. We'll talk about that. What is this sin? Well, we see first and foremost that it's the only sin that will not be forgiven. The only sin that will not be forgiven. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Every other sin will be forgiven if people commit it, but this one sin that will not be forgiven is blasphemy against the Spirit. So this is a pretty big deal, right? So what is it? What's blasphemy? Let's start there. Blasphemy is defined as slander, detraction, injurious speech to another's good name. And as far as God goes, it's impious and reproachful speech injurious to divine majesty. So it's chiefly a verbal sin. Something somebody says. And that saying, those words are here in our context, injurious, impious against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. 
So it's speaking against the Holy Spirit in a way that makes Him look not holy. Speaking against the Holy Spirit that makes Him not God. You say, oh shoot, I might have done that. Speaking against Him, speaking against what He's doing, and saying that, well, maybe that's the devil doing it. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly what we heard today, right? It's exactly what the Pharisees did. They saw the Holy Spirit of God or heard that the Holy Spirit of God had done something miraculous through this Jesus fellow to deliver a demon-oppressed man, to heal that man who was blind and mute, and they said the devil did that. And Jesus says they will never be forgiven. Well, maybe they'll repent. Jesus says they will never be forgiven. He says that is the one sin that will not be forgiven. It will not. It's the one sin that won't be forgiven. You call the Spirit and His work the devil and you will not be forgiven, He says. Therefore, Jesus says, since there's only two camps and the Pharisees have chosen to call God the devil, that sin will not be forgiven. So Jesus is not going to give them a chance to repent? Maybe Jesus knew that they weren't going to repent. Maybe Jesus knew that what they had done was because the trajectory that they were on was leading them straight to hell anyway. A little more elaboration in verse 32 as we finish up. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus amps up the clarity on this specific sin in our last verse today. He says that if anybody speaks a word against, if anybody blasphemes the Son of Man, which is Jesus, they can be forgiven. So what's the difference here? Trinitarian issue? Maybe Jesus wasn't God? Let's stop there. God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is equal with God the Father and God the Son. God the Father is equal with the Son and the Spirit. And my brain hurts. So why is it unforgivable to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but not so the Son of Man? God the Son. A little inflection here, I think. I think the fact that Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man here can carry a couple of meanings. We've seen this a couple times already that that title Son of Man that Jesus seems to prefer for Himself comes from Daniel's vision and has direct messianic implications. The Son of Man was given a kingdom that will never end by the Ancient of Days back in Daniel 7. And Jesus refers to that a lot. But Son of Man would also point toward His humanity, right? Son of God and Son of Man. How easy would it be to not fully understand who Jesus really was as He walked around in flesh and blood? I mean, what if God was one of us? That's a terrible song. I'll stop. How easy would it be to look at this guy and go, is that God? (laughs) 
The scriptures are clear that there was an emptying of some divine prerogatives so that Jesus the man, a son of man, born of a woman, could be not understood. Somebody could probably speak against him. And that wouldn't be unforgivable. But to know that supernatural occurrences are taking place, to know that either the devil or the Holy Spirit is acting, and to make a determination that God's Spirit and God's work may be from the devil, well, that's not ever going to be okay. And not just now, but either in this age or in the age to come. You're like, well, I'll repent once I go to heaven and face God. No, you won't. You call the Spirit of God the devil and attribute His power and working to that same devil, which is exactly what the Pharisees did. And you not only don't know God, you're accusing God of being evil, which is the very essence of blasphemy. And there is no hope for you. Ever. And we're done. See you all next week. I know that doesn't answer all of our questions. But maybe we can answer a couple more of them as we move into application. Three B's this morning. Blaspheme, bind, and binary. There you go. Blaspheme, bind, and binary. Those are hard to remember. Blaspheme, bind, binary. Three B's. So, first application point. Of course, we have to address the question of blasphemy. Don't we? Even though that's not the main point of this passage. Anybody worried that they might have committed the unpardonable sin? Worried that you might in the future. I mean, that'd be pretty bad, wouldn't it? To commit a sin that can't be forgiven in this age or in the age to come. That'd be awful. So what is it? Well, if you read 20 commentators, you're probably going to get 12 different opinions of what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And let me tell you what, they all make it sound right what they're saying. They're all over the map. Some would say to be very careful because if you attribute anything that God does to Satan, you can't be forgiven. Some say that blaspheming can be shown by serious sins like murder or suicide. That that's, a, that's saying God didn't do this and I'll make a decision about what happens to this life. Some say this unpardonable sin was just for those who were hearing Jesus speak and had attributed the Spirit's work to Jesus' day to the devil, attributed His work to the devil. Who's right? I'm afraid smarter people than me have not figured that out. So my efforts would be redundant at best and blasphemous at worst. So what should we do in light of this passage? Should we worry that we committed the unpardonable sin? Or that we might, either on purpose or by accident? Well, that's not the point of this passage. Jesus is not trying to scare people into obedience. Jesus is not trying to scare people into doing the right thing. And you better be very careful because if you do the wrong thing, I'm never going to forgive you. Is that the tone of God? There is no fear in love. 1 John I don't have it up here. It's coming to my head now. Eight? There's no, I'll, I'll quote it. I don't know the reference. I don't know the chapter and verse. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment or punishment. Those who fear have not been made perfect in love. That's God. 
God's people do not walk around in fear that God is going to punish them. Once your enemy now seated at your table, the wrath of God completely satisfied. Listen to me, Christian. You have not and you will not commit the unpardonable sin. But what if... Stop it! Or I'm going to put you in a box. You cannot because the wrath of God is completely satisfied. And every sin you have ever committed and will commit were washed away by the blood of Jesus. The point of this text is not to scare you into thinking that you might commit this sin. That's not the point. Now, we do have to be very careful not to blaspheme, right? Blasphemy is a sin. And you can commit blasphemy. And it's a terrible thing. Speaking evil of or assigning bad motives or purposes to God is a seriously grave sin. R.C. Sproul said he had a minister friend, a guy who was a minister, who was angry with God and accused God of not caring about his situation and not providing for him. That's blasphemous. It's a grave sin. And it's forgivable. Have you ever blasphemed? Have you ever assigned evil motives to God? I have. Have you ever doubted God's compassion for you? Have you ever doubted God's plan for you? That's blasphemy. Maybe your situation didn't work out the way you wanted it to and you blamed God for not doing your will. Boy, we'll do that, won't we? And that's blasphemous. And God can and will forgive you. We have a culture, even a church culture, that's very lazy and coarse in our language. As such, God is blasphemed by people's words day in and day out. And it's sin. And it's forgivable. I do believe that Jesus is addressing these Pharisees in this passage today and telling them that their calling the Holy Spirit's work, the work of the devil, is the unforgivable sin that is being committed at that time in that place. I do not believe we can commit that sin. And that doesn't let you off the hook. I don't think we can because we've got a fuller revelation now than they had. A fuller knowledge of Jesus and His work in our lifetimes. And we can read this passage. They'd never read this passage before. They probably never did. But that doesn't mean that we should breathe a sigh of relief. Shoo, good. And just not worry about blaspheming. Either as believers or unbelievers. Luke read from Hebrews 10 this morning, and there's a controversial passage earlier in that book that speaks to this. John MacArthur pointed out in his message. I'm going to read 12 verses, and we're going to take the 30,000-foot view of them because we're almost done. Listen to this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Man, the... <laughs> Woo! Those in the first part of the passage saw, tasted, and shared in God's work. But they fell away. And then it was impossible to restore them to repentance. Some use this passage to say that we can lose our salvation. But the whole point of the whole book of Hebrews is that Jesus is who He is and did what He did once for all, not needing to repeat or improve upon it. We see then the second part of this passage that we read in Hebrews 6 that the beloved in verse 9 are those who know of things that belong to salvation. The other people didn't know these salvation things. They had glimpses, but they fell away before salvation and fell into bearing thorns and thistles. They were worthless and their end is to be burned. This is unforgivable as well. If you don't repent, you will not be forgiven. If you never believe, if you never trust the Spirit's work of conviction and calling you to salvation, you can't be saved. Don't taste and fall away. I didn't really like that so much. I don't like that Bible stuff. It's just a little too hard for me. I mean, God loves everybody, right? The end is to be burned. Can't be forgiven for that. If you never turn around, if you never repent. That's what we've got to worry about in our age, in our time. So don't blaspheme. That's application point one. And in with that real quick, listen to me. You have not committed a single sin that God can't forgive. That's awful good news. Because some of you are thinking, well, back when I was a teenager, back when I was a young adult, back when, back when this happened and that happened, there's nothing that God can't forgive you for. Woo! That's good news. Blaspheme. Sorry, buddy. Second application point, bind. This is, just, this is really kind of a side note. Let me ask you this question. Are we to bind Satan? Some use this passage today and two others in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 where Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And they call on us to bind Satan. Like when they pray for themselves or pray for others, they say, I bind you, Satan, and render you powerless in this situation. I bind up the strong man. Well, that's not what our passage said today. It's not what Jesus called His people to. And it's not what we'll see when we get to Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Simple application point. We are not called to, nor instructed, nor commanded to bind Satan. And if that changes your prayers, praise God. Jesus said in our passage today that He bound Satan. Go back to Matthew 4 when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus showed His mastery over the devil and His temptations there. 
He said in our passage today that he was plundering the strong man's house. And in order to do that, he had to bind the strong man. So it was done in Jesus' day. You don't have to, nor could you. The devil's stronger than you in and of yourself. Yeah, right, right. But you're like, wait a minute, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is in me if I'm a believer. And you're right. And you ain't Jesus. You are beset with sin in your flesh, in your heart, in your head. Jesus was not. And beset with sin, we are not capable in and of ourselves of standing against the enemy. And we're not even told to bind the enemy anyway. Jesus was not beset with sin. And in the last days, Jesus will visibly bind the enemy, cast him into the lake of fire to be punished forever for his rebellion. In the meantime, we trust Jesus to have bound Satan and know that He will in the future finally bind Him forever. Pray to Jesus. Entrust the enemy to Jesus. Praise Jesus that He has bound the strong man. Stop trying to fight Him in your power or with what has seemed like cleverly designed phrases. Stop it. Blaspheme, bind, finally binary. This is the main point of the passage. And we have to make sure that we don't miss this. Listen to me, church. This is important. Jesus made it clear in today's passage that there are exactly two kingdoms that men are a part of. Either they are in and with God's kingdom or they are in and with Satan's kingdom. There is no middle ground. All of us are either in the moment with our choices and what we're doing, doing the work of the Christ, or we're doing the work of the Antichrist. Everything we do is either furthering God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. Period. And we have to make our decisions as such each and every day. All day. Every day. What I do... What I think, what I feel, what I say, what I eat, what I drink is either furthering God's kingdom, is either for Christ, or it's against Him. What I do all day, every day is either gathering or scattering. For the unbeliever, each and everything that he or she does is against Christ. The Bible is clear that those outside of Christ are, 2 Timothy 2.26, in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There's no free will there. They're not in faith. And Romans 14.23 tells us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But... For the one adopted into the kingdom, the one adopted into the family of God, we can choose which kingdom we want to walk in. We can choose which kingdom we want to promote or further. I can choose to please myself, do what I want for my selfish desires. Is that godly or satanic? It's satanic. When I'm chasing my kingdom, wanting my way, saying God wants me to be happy, guess what? You're doing the devil's work. You're saying, can I do the devil's work if I'm saved? Absolutely. And everything I think, say, smell, taste, hear, touch, eat, drink 
comes down to this choice. Do I want to further God's kingdom or not? Did not Jesus teach His disciples to pray that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven? We still have to pray that. We have to trust God to empower us to live that out. His kingdom manifested in and through us. And we have to choose to walk in His power by the Holy Spirit whom He has caused to live in us. Not my will, but His will be done. Which is exactly what Jesus prayed in Gethsemane before His crucifixion. That is the epitome of God's kingdom. Not my will, but yours be done. Seeing God and His will accomplished as a matter of first and only importance in our lives. Now I'm going to ask you, Christian, sitting here today, which side of the fence are you on right now? Am I saying if you step into Satan's kingdom, you're not saved? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying you can consciously choose to do your own thing, to have your way, and you're operating within the kingdom of Satan. God will convict you. God will draw you back. And you will be sorry that you did it. How much of your day, Christian, is spent focusing on the kingdom of God? That's a little bit convicting to me. I'm thinking about what i got to do next, what time i got to get up so that I can get to work, so that I can make the money that I want to make, so that I can buy what I want to buy, so that I can get what I like and impress people that I do like or don't like, so that I can do the things that make me feel good, so that I can eat the food that I like to eat, do the things, sleep when I want to sleep, do what I want to do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do not miss the point worrying about this unpardonable sin thing, which is important, but don't miss the point that you are in a battle every day of your life to choose between two kingdoms. And you cannot walk them both. Two paths. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you are walking on the path within the kingdom of Satan. And you need to cry forth to God for deliverance from this kingdom so that you can walk God's path and see God's kingdom manifest in your life. He has to do that. Call out to Him to do that and walk His road and look for His kingdom to be accomplished in your life. Two choices. I pray that we make the right one. Let's pray. God, help us to be conscious of the choices that we are making. Help us to know that we are choosing one path or the other at all times. God, I pray that we would be those who do not blaspheme. I pray that we would not waste our time trying to bind Satan after you've already done it. And God, I pray that we would see that there are two paths in front of us at all times. May we not be those who with a sigh choose the one we don't really want to take. May we with confidence and joy choose your path and glorify you as we do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction?
Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can. You're dismissed.